You are listening to a Whitebridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, I am so glad to be back. Uh, it's been a great summer for Pat and I. Uh, we've been on vacation, and it's good to be back in the saddle. And uh, wonderful to have a couple of weddings ending the summer, as well as to be back in preaching. And I'm glad to be able to today finish the series on Titus. Uh, I understand it's gone very well. And um, we're going to take some time before uh, the actual message on Titus to take some time to pray. And uh, there have been a few of you that have emailed the office. There's been a few of you that have phoned and, and um, just uh, said, what are we doing for the nations? What are, we, what are we doing? How are we calling ourselves to be part of the solution on planet Earth with so many nations in conflict? And... Um, and so today, uh, beginning right now, I'd like to just take some time to uh, share some, some of the, the facts as well as go to prayer with you, and I'll invite you to uh, join me in a moment. When diplomacy is failing around the globe, when the United Nations have an inability to maintain peace, when nations invade other nations without being invited when there's a justified genocide happening based on philosophical or religious grounds, and when the international community has a, uh, an inability to respond on time, to show a response, we see everything that is ready for absolute chaos and bloodshed and violence. We're seeing that in various places. It, Reminds me of World War II. I'm viewing a video series right now, and it reminds me of the kinds of conditions that were in, in place uh, in World War II. And so today, um, I would like us to think about how we can pray. There's a verse in Psalm verse, chapter 7, verse 9. It says, O righteous God, who searches minds and hearts, bring to an end the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure. Specifically, I would like us to think about the situation in northern Iraq and Syria where one commentator this past week said that there has been an international paralysis in being able to respond. And so very little is being done in northern Iraq. Uh, the Kurdish soldiers and troops are doing their best to resist ISIS, the Islamic State, and uh, yet minority groups, including Christians especially, are being targeted and massive killings are taking place. We know also, of course, about Israel and Gaza, the strip of, along the Mediterranean that is just a small parcel of land that is being such a, a problem. For now, the seventh week this summer, there has been no solutions of diplomacy. The ceasefires have not succeeded. And uh, so now... Uh, since July the 8th, over 2,000 Palestinians have been killed and over 60 Israelis. Many of these are children and women, civilians, and uh, it continues. Then there is the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, which has caused international anxiety. And then, of course, we know about Russia and the invasion of Ukraine, there's Libya, there's Jordan, there's so many places we could talk about. I read this past week about the founder of the 
Christian Missionary Alliance, A.B. Simpson. One day he had a house guest, and uh, the house guest got up early to go downstairs and have some time alone, and he found A.B. Simpson in his office with a big globe of the world in his hands. And he was crying. Just sitting in his office, praying for the world. Crying. I can tell you that I've shed very, very little tears over the situations that I've described. And it, it is my, to my shame. I feel numb. I feel like I'm unresponsive. I feel like I don't have the heart of God for the nations. And so how is it that we can respond? <clears throat> I believe that we need to be informed. I believe we need to be wise about where we get our information. We need to be careful to make judgments and take sides. We need to be encouraging people when we have an opportunity to, to gather and pray. I encourage you to think about fasting and praying. Um, a lot of the journalism that comes out is not accurate. We, Pat and I had an opportunity to have lunch this past summer with the Air Canada pilot, the very first pilot that flew a jet into Tel Aviv after the ceasefire was supposedly ending. And uh, it, he was told immediately to lift up and head, head north. And uh, the, the journal, when, they, when he finally landed the plane in Tel Aviv, his wife got a hold of him from Canada here and was all worried because there was all the journalism was that they were two hours out of, out of place. There was missiles being fired at the airport and so on. And he said that it was 15 minutes. They did one big loop and they came back and they were given clearance to land. And he said that, that a lot of the hype was uh, just bad journalism, jumping to conclusions. Um, and he was being hailed as his hero. And he said, all I did was do one big loop. And all I'm saying in that, I'm not saying that journalism is always exaggerated. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that we need to be wise about where we get our sources and uh, cross-check the information with good sources. Let me read to you a call from the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, of which we as a, are a church as a member of. And this came out just over a week ago. It said, the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada today announces a special call on the Canadian church to pray for Christians and other minorities who have been, since June of this year, brutally targeted by the militant Islamic fundamentalist terrorist group, the Islamic State, formerly known as ISIS or Al-Qaeda in Iraq. The EFC is calling on Canadian Christians to specifically pray for those directly affected by the attack on religious liberty and the related refugee humanitarian crisis in Iraq congregations could offer special prayers beginning on August 17th, each Sunday. On July 19th, Christians in Mosul, the ancient city of Nineveh, second largest city in Iraq, were given the ultimatum to either convert to Islam, pay a jizya, which is a punitive religious tax, flee from their homes and businesses, or die by the sword. Thousands of Christians fled to regions under the protection of Kurdish troops 70 kilometers away. The Islamic State group is responsible for the recent attack, capture, starvation, and even reported beheadings of hundreds of innocent civilians in northern Iraq, including women and children. According to an analysis compiled by the U.S. intelligence agencies, the Islamic State has long had plans to seize power and create a fundamentalist Islamic State in Iraq. 
Currently, the group's reign of terror and religious genocide is sweeping across the northern area of the country toward the autonomous Kurdish region in the northeast where many of the Iraq Christians have fled for refuge. On the August 6 and 7, the city of Karkosh, a located, uh, location of the largest concentration of Christians, the Kurdish troops who had been protecting Christians were assaulted by Islamic State militants and sub subsequently had to leave their posts. Some 90,000 Christians and religious minorities were forced to flee on foot. The displacement of so many of Iraq's innocent citizens is pressing on an already enormous refugee situation in the Kurdish region where the United Nations Refugee Agency has estimated that 1.2 million people have been displaced by fighting this year. Recent reports suggest that some refugees are being prevented from reaching safe areas because of race or religion. Canada has pledged $5 million in aid for displaced civilians in Iraq forced to flee by advancing Islamic State forces. The money will be used to buy hygiene kits, blankets, cooking materials, and food for the thousands of people. Pray for the safety of Christians and other minority groups fleeing. Pray for international government and leadership as they discern the most effective response, how to best protect and defend minority groups in Iraq. Pray for comfort for those who have lost loved ones. Pray for missionaries and humanitarian aid groups who serve in this area, surrounding regions, that they might know how to respond. This is from Bruce Cleminger, president of the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. I received a similar report from John Robb of the International Prayer Council. I won't read it. Very similar kind of language. The International Prayer Council has missionaries in the field in this area, and they're, they're giving reports back, accurate reports. And they're saying, please pray in the West. Please pray. As well, World Vision on their webpage and has sources that describe some of the things that are going on, not only in this place, but in Gaza. And uh, in Gaza, particularly, I, I read just yesterday that an estimated 60% of sponsored children from World Vision has, uh, and their families have been displaced by the warfare. And... Um, and so there's sources that we can go to. There's, there's good places to find out information. The issue is, are we going to make ourselves available to that information? Are we going to make the effort of turning off some other silly TV show or doing something that is pleasure-oriented and actually take some time to become informed, take, take some time to, to take a, a moment around the table and pray with the family or, or do something else that is going to be of value? And so this morning, as we think about how to respond, I would like to lead us in a time of prayer. And um, to do so, I would like you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 5. Psalm chapter 5. <clears throat> I'm going to um, use this psalm as a prayer, and I'm going to adapt it so that we can pray corporately. You don't need to say anything out loud, but I would ask that you follow along and pray with me as I lead us in prayer for the nations. Let's pray. <clears throat> Give ear to our words, O Lord, and consider our sighing. Listen to our cries for help. 
our King and our God, for to you we pray. In the morning, O Lord, you hear our voice. In the morning, we lay our requests before you now, and we wait in expectation. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you, the wicked cannot dwell. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies, bloodthirsty and deceitful men. You, O Lord, abhor. But we, by your great mercy, will come into your house. And in reverence, we will bow down toward your holy temple. Lead us, O God, in your righteousness because of our enemies. Make straight your way before us. Not a word from their mouths can be trusted. Their hearts are filled with destruction. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they speak deceit. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, and for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. For surely, O Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. Continuing in prayer. Father, our God, we come to you this morning and continue in prayer. We ask you, Lord, to have mercy upon the lands that we have been describing We think of northern Iraq and Syria where so many minority groups have been targeted, where there has been already such bloodshed, where godless men and women who have an agenda that has been crafted by Satan are seeking to kill and destroy and rob. Oh God, we ask you in the name of Jesus to show the international community how to respond. God, we ask you that Christians in those lands would have faith in you to rise up and call upon you and trust in you in spite of evil advancing. We ask you, O Lord God, that you would protect the innocent, the children particularly, O God. We ask you, Father, that the safety upon these groups would, would come from your hand, that you'd confound the enemy. We ask you, Lord, to give a response a concrete response in the, aid, in the aid, in the protection, and in the defense of people that are minorities because of race or religion. We ask you, O oh God, for comfort upon those who've already been displaced from their homes, are seeking refugees, camps, and are in, in danger of their own lives. And Father, we pray for missionaries and humanitarian aid organizations in Iraq and Syria in surrounding countries that are being affected by this. And Father, we pray for ourselves that we would wake up from a sleepy slumber, asleep in the light while others die in darkness. Father, would you prick our hearts? Would you cause us, Lord, to, in the middle of our day or a week, to leave time, make time, to be informed and to pray specifically? Oh, Father, we sometimes feel that we are small and insignificant little Christians in a land far away. What can one prayer have as an effect upon this great need, O God? And yet, Father, you've said in your word that when your people called by your name will humble themselves and pray and seek your face, 
you turn and you hear. And so, Lord, would you do that? Would you, would you cause us to be praying for these situations? We think of Israel and, and we think of the Palestinians and Hamas, oh God. Evil people doing evil things with an evil agenda. We pray, oh God, for wisdom to know how to respond. We pray for the situation in the Ukraine, in Russia. We pray for the Ebola outbreak. We pray, oh God, that you'd give wisdom to those that have been placed in authority, whether it's in the medical communities or whether it's in military strategies. Whatever it takes, oh Father, would you move the hands that move the nations and bring your peace on this earth. Jesus, you are the Prince of Peace. There is no one like you. And you have said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We pray that we'd be sons of God. Would you bless? Would you hear us? Would you have compassion? Would you forgive us in our negligence? And would you show us how to live? We pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for that time, and uh, thank you for joining me in just being able to take a moment. I would invite you to uh, become informed, and if you find some things that are good sources, fire them off to the church office, or Heather Workentine has been doing some research on behalf of our church, uh, send them to her. We, we'd like to be able to distribute information so that we can pray regularly for situations as they arise. Well, I know that we are finishing off a series on Titus this morning, and uh, if you'll think about this for a moment, Doug mentioned earlier that we're getting ready in two weeks to go into uh, Philippians, and you'll know if you've been around for a while that the Ephesians, Titus and Philippians, we're, we're studying all three of those Paul's epistles. And so we're getting a good dose of Paul in these this year. And by the time we finish the year, we'll have gone through those three epistles of Paul. And then we're shifting gears again, coming into the new year in January. And as we do every year, we try to get back into the Old Testament. And we're going to carry on this coming year in a, in a series on the life of King David. And I have been taking my time alone this summer to study the life of David. And I'm, I'm just so excited about preaching through First and Second Samuel starting in January and... Um, I know that God has incredible lessons for us, not only as individuals about the life of David, but also as a church, as we think about the future plans that God has in, uh, in possibly building a new building, in us relocating, in us sharpening our focus on vision, on what Christ wants to do in us so that we can be nurturing followers of Jesus Christ in this world. And so um, I look forward to preaching through David's life. This morning, as we continue, um, we're going to be also reminding you of the discipleship continuum that uh, Doug and Kevin and others have shared with us. We asked ourselves a few years ago as a church, what does it mean to nurture followers of Christ? In other words, what does it look like? And if we don't have an idea of what, what it looks like, then how do we know uh, 
what we're aiming for. And so as we began to study, uh, we began to see that, that when we turn our lives over to the Lordship of Christ, he begins to work in our character. It starts, uh, the metamorphosis word is a word that means that you're transformed from the inside out. And so your heart begins to change before your behavior changes. And that's the way the Lord works. It's not a conformity outwardly, it's a transforming inwardly. And that results in an integrated life. The person that you are with some people is the person that you are with other people. You have integrity. God wants to move in our lives as well into the relationships that we nurture. Our community becomes real koinonia, authentic fellowship, where our friendships, even as Christians, is not just surrounding talking about whatever the world talks about, and yet because we're Christians, we're, we're somehow doing it in a Christian way. No, we're actually talking about Christ and his priorities, and we're praying about the world and things that move the heart of God. And then, of course, we realize that another component of maturing in Christ is, is this outward service component. It's not, it becomes not just acts of service, which might start as you are a new Christian, you begin to, to do things differently, and you do things for the Lord's service, but it becomes an actual servanthood, a, a lifestyle of serving. That's what we believe a disciple of Jesus should look like. And then, of course, we moved into uh, what Kevin talked about last week a bit in terms of gratitude to praise, where really everything about life is praiseworthy. There's this Godward life. There's this God saturation. So, so praise is not just something that you do on a Sunday in gratitude to God, but it, praise is something that, that, that is saturating your life. So you naturally wake up and think of the Lord and open His Word and pray and talk, and you naturally close the day uh, with the Lord and ponder how He is worthy. And then today, as I just comment briefly on the closing words of Titus, we look at witness to fruitfulness. The idea of actually living a life that, that is not just telling about Jesus verbally, but a, a God-saturated life, uh, a Christ aroma life and a life that is naturally going to uh, cause others to say there's something about you that I want to know more of and it's Jesus. It, it, can be, it is described in the New Testament in so many ways, walking in the Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit, the vine and the branches abiding and bearing fruit, a life of productivity. And so there's just one verse today that I would like us to look at the one that you see up on the screen. It's from Titus chapter 3 and verse 14. And uh, I would ask you to stand with me and read it out loud with me as well. Titus chapter 3 and verse 14. Let's read it together. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive, unfruitful lives. Titus 3, 14. God bless you. You may be seated. I've entitled my sermon, Lord, Make My Life Count. When I was 17 years old, I had an experience with the Lord that uh, caused me to turn my life over to Christ. I was a good church-going kid at that time, all through my childhood and teen years. 
But I had a little stage of rebellion in grade 10, and then the Lord just arrested me, got a hold of my life, and I began to turn over to Him absolutely everything. I wanted all of my life to be, belong to Him. I wanted His Lordship. I knew that He had died for me. I knew that Christ died on the cross for my sin. I knew that He rose again. That I knew that He was a living God that I could actually talk to and pour out my concerns to. I knew that he was going to come back one day and hold me accountable for how I lived my life. And I knew that, that he gave me the resources to do something different in this world with. But I was a 17-year-old and I really didn't have a lot of, of uh, nurturing and discipleship in my life. And so I began to think about how I could be built up. And somehow, at that time in my life, God put in my hands a little book uh, by... Raymond Ortland. It had just been published that year in 1975. And it was called, Lord, Make My Life Count. Lord, Make My Life Count. I thought about that book five years ago. And I, 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 didn't, I couldn't find it. It wasn't in my library anymore. So I ordered a copy. I got a used copy sent to me. And I read it five years ago in 2009. And... Uh, and I realized, even though it now it didn't, it didn't grab me the same way, but at that time I could see how it absolutely arrested my attention as to how, as a young man, I could give my life, every area of my life, over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, piece by piece, my life could count eternally. And so I read that book. It helped me to focus my life I believe that at many stages in our life journey, whatever age, God does that. God arrests us. God gets our attention. God moves in on us. He, he forces His way upon us in some way that if, unless you're an absolute rebel running from Him, you will wake up to His voice. You will be aware of His call. He could use a crisis. He could use a relationship. He could use His Word. He could use providential circumstance in your life that you have no control over. Whatever it is, He'll use something to awaken you to the next step of your maturity unto godliness, the next step of His agenda for your life. And so this faith walk is indeed a journey, a walking with Him, because He has the plan. He has the people. He has the means of shepherding your soul into maturity. The work that He began in you, Philippians 1.6, He is faithful to bring unto completion. It was said of Christopher Columbus that he did not know where he was going. He didn't know where he was when he got there. And he didn't know where he had been when he returned. I think that's the way a lot of people live their lives. They don't know where they're going. They don't know where they've arrived at. And they don't know where they've been. They just live. Someone said that the unexamined life is not worth living. And so my call and the call of Titus is a call to being fruitful, a fruitful life. And let me begin by starting with the foundation of a fruitful life. The foundation of a fruitful life. And I would like you to turn in your Bibles to Titus. And though it is not specifically in the portion that I am sharing with, I don't want for a moment anyone here to think that 
we are taking the Bible and reading it like a moralistic text. I never want us to open the Word of God and somehow view this book as though it is simply a moralistic text of how to be a do-gooder and live a good life without the foundation of a moral and do-good life. And the foundation of a life that counts, Titus has, Paul has already addressed in his letter to Titus. Take a look at chapter 2, verse 11. This was addressed a few weeks ago. In chapter 2, verse 11, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Notice that you are redeemed to be a people of God that are eager to do what is good. That's the purpose of your salvation. Being enlisted in this army of God that are on the earth seeking to live do good lives. That's the salvation of Jesus Christ that is the foundation of a life that counts. And then in chapter 3, the text that Kevin addressed last week, it says in verse 3, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared... He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. You see, the purpose of our salvation, the reason that God sets you apart and gives you salvation is not just so that you can live whatever kind of life you want on this earth and finish your days and then have your ticket to heaven. It is so that you, in your living, saturated with the Holy Spirit and the Lordship of Christ in your life, can live a radically different life compared to all your neighbors and the world around you. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, and we're created in Christ Jesus for what purpose? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so we see that the foundation of a life that counts, the foundation of a fruitful life, is a life that has been born in God, a life that is grace-oriented, a life that is the mercy of God. Friends, I, I pause on that only because we do not ever want to think that the life, the external focus of our lives as a church or as individuals is all up to us. No, it's the God life in us through Jesus Christ that makes us equipped to make a difference on planet Earth. And so that's the foundation. Secondly, Paul goes on to talk about the fellowship of a life that counts. And if you'll notice in verse 9, again, referred to last week, uh, Paul talks about avoiding foolish controversies and arguments. He says in verse 10, 
worn a divisive person once and then have nothing, have worn him a second time after that, have nothing to do with him. And that word divisive is the idea of, uh, the actual word is where we get our word heretic from. And it has to do with the idea, in its essence, the, the etymology of that word comes from an idea called, that means to choose. The heretic, the divisive person, has chosen a certain priority, a certain bent, a certain course of action, a certain course of belief or praxis. And because of that choice, they have put their feet in concrete. They have determined that's their way. And come hell or high water, whatever is divided, whatever kinds of havoc they may wreak in the body of Christ, they are going to follow that course. I have met people in my life as a pastor where I have come alongside of them, according to the Matthew 18, where you go one-on-one -on -one and you, you plead with them. And I've, I've, I've been faced with people where I can see that they have given themselves over to a certain ideology, a certain theology, a certain belief, a certain practice, a certain habit, and there is no turning them back. That's what Paul is talking about to Titus. He's saying it's better to remove this cancer from this body and save the body than try to restore this limb of cancer to the body because you're going to lose the whole thing. And so these are very strong words. In Titus, Paul is talking a lot about the need for some church discipline on the island of Crete. A divisive person. So he's saying, you avoid these people. There are people that you just avoid. It's, it's, it doesn't sound Christianly, does it? I'm not talking about being rude or unloving. But I am talking about discernment in your life at times, young and old, you may be in public school or high school or university. You may be a senior. But there may be at times when God is saying to you, you need to avoid these people because they're divisive. You're not going to win that battle. Be careful. But Paul also tells Titus about some very good people. And this is the, the amazing thing about God's grace is that he'll always give you people in your life that are meant to build you up in your faith. And there is Titus on the island of Crete as a pastor, working alone, maybe feeling lonely, though there are elders in the church. And Paul says in these verses, 12 and 13, he says, As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. He's giving them a reprieve. He's going to build them up. And he's sending in some reinforcements. We know nothing about Artemis. We know a little bit about Tychicus, a trusted fellow traveler of Paul's. Zenos, who is mentioned in the next verse, is the only Christian lawyer mentioned in the New Testament. <laughs> I don't say that as though there aren't a lot of them. But he's the only Christian lawyer that we read about in the New Testament. And then there's Apollos, who is very well known in the church of Corinth as a leader. And, and so there is, there is Paul saying to Titus, there are some people in your fellowship of a life that counts, there are some people that you're going to need to avoid if you're going to get on with maturity. But God's going to give you somebody else. I'm sending these two to you right now to help you out. Does that resonate with some of you? Sometimes you've had to do that. Tough decisions. I, 
I'm looking back at, I urge, earlier I, I shared with you of my, a little bit of my testimony in my grade 10 year that was a bit of a, a rebellion. I had to say goodbye, in essence, to the closest friend I had, Tim. And, and I had to follow my way. I wasn't rude. I, I kept in touch, but I knew that I could not stay walking on the path that Tim was walking on. So there are decisions to be made. Living a life that counts means being wise about your friends. And then thirdly, the, the fruitfulness of a life that counts. And that is where I want to just pause for a moment. Did you know that six times in this 46-verse letter, <laughs> six times Paul refers to good works? Take a look just quickly with me, beginning in chapter 2, in, in verse 3. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanders or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Teach what is good. To be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home. Six, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled and in everything set them an example by doing good works, doing what is good. Chapter 2, verse 14. He redeemed us from all wickedness to purify for himself a people that are his own eager to do what is good. Chapter 3, verse 1, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready to do whatever is good. Chapter 3, verse 8, devote themselves to doing what is good. Verse 14, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unfruitful, is the word, productive, unproductive lives. Why such an emphasis on good works, you ask? I mean, come on, Paul, it's a short letter. Why the repetition? Well, I think we have a clue back in chapter 1. In chapter 1, in verse, in verse 12 and 13, we read Paul quoting one of the poets of the Cretan culture. And he says, even one of their own prophets have said that Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. You see, the point is that, I know we don't like to stereotype culture, but it seems like that's what's going on here. Paul's saying, you know something? It's true. These people are known to be this way. Liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And a life that's lived for others, a life of good works, an externally focused life, that's not what this culture was known for. Now, we might kind of point the finger, but I want to ask you, what do you think the North American culture is known for on planet Earth right now? What are we known for? Are we known for a life of good deeds? Well, you know, we have a lot of humanitarian aid around the world. But unfortunately, we're known as a very pleasure-seeking society. What will we be known for in 2,000 years when it's all written about us? Here we are reading a 2,000-year-old document about a, an older people called the Cretans. What's the stereotype that's going to be told of us? And what's Paul doing? Paul's saying to the Christians on the island of Crete, you are supposed to come out from among them and be separate. And what's Paul saying to us in this age, or what the Word of God is saying to us in this age, is you, Christians in North America, you are called to come out from them and be separate. You're, to, you're meant to live productive and fruitful lives, not unproductive lives. 
It should not be said of Christians and churches the same things that are said of cultures that they live in. Is that true? I think that's true. We have a different leadership by the Lordship of Christ. And so we read in these scriptures that we are called to be different. What will be said of us is determined by what we're going to do about our lives. Our life of doing good must be a distinguishing feature. That's what Paul's saying in simple terms. Whether it's in your home, whether it's in your family, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's in your neighborhood or community at work or school, whether it's in Garden Hill or Bolivia or India, whether it's in the North End or at Salome Mission or wherever it is, our lives are meant to be distinguished by doing good, good, good deeds. There's something different. Christ is seen because of what he does in and through us. I read this past summer the biography of William Wilberforce called Amazing Grace. The reason it was called Amazing Grace was because by the providence of God, he lived at the same time as John Newton who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. And at the beginning of his life as a young man and then at the end of his days, or later in his days, he, he got to know this gentleman 12 to 15 years older than him called John Newton that kept him on the track. And if you know, Wilberforce was, was the man used by God to end the slave trade in, in Africa. And uh, this book tells of all the atrocities of the slave trade. The thing that's amazing is... Uh, let me just read to you something. This is one life. This is one life. It says, um, On Friday evening, July 26, Wilberforce received word of the very thing for which he had dreamed his entire adult life. The House had just passed the bill abolishing slavery in the British Empire. <laughs> he, he was 50 years in Parliament working for that. And then a retired man for several more years. And finally, it came about three days before he died. Three days before he died. It says here, <clears throat> after his death, it says here, a year later, at midnight, on July the 31st, 1834, this is a year after Wilberforce died, 800,000. 800,000 slaves became free. It was more than a great event in Africa or in British history. It was the, one of the greatest events in the history of mankind. One historian said this, that on the last night of slavery, can you picture this? The last night before the next day is, slave, is freedom. The last night of slavery, the Negroes in our West Indian islands went up onto the hilltops to watch the sun rise, bringing them freedom as the first rays struck the water. Incredible. 800,000 people freed in all the plantations of the West Indies, people that had been taken from their homes in Africa and forced into slavery. 800,000 freed. 
Why? Because really one man would not let go of God's agenda for his life. William Wilberforce. I don't know if there's any Wilberforces in this room today or not. I don't know what God's agenda for your life is. I do know that all of us should be asking the question or saying to the Lord, 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 make my life count. Make my life count. You know, we have tried and we are still working at it. We are trying to make more and more available response to the scriptures, to the preaching of the word, response to our steps of discipleship. I heard of a church recently that at the end of every service has in the foyer a table set up where people can sign up for service opportunities. You know, Heather Warkentine along with Dave Henkelman have been working on getting on our webpage various links and various service opportunities. If you were to visit our webpage this week, you would find that there are three places you could visit in the church, in the community, and in the world. And if you were to click on in the community, you will find that we have links to Camp Nudimic, Meadowwood Manor, Living Bible Explorers, Pathway Camp Ministries, the Joy Smith Foundation, Winnipeg Harvest, the Chai Center, Crisis Pregnancy Center, the North End Family Center, Salome Mission. I mean, we have people that are helping in these missions and ministries. And uh, you might just want to join them. But there are, there are ways of responding to the Word of God. There are ways of responding to the plea upon your heart, Lord, make my life count. And my prayer for all of us, as Karen encouraged us earlier in the worship service, my prayer for all of us is that we would realize the temporal nature of our days and the eternal nature of our lives and make our lives count for the glory of God. Would you stand with me as we conclude our service? Lord our God, we thank you so very much for sending your son Jesus Christ to redeem us from an empty way of life and to make our lives filled with purpose and meaning. And Father, we know that sometimes the decisions of life are decisions of what to stop doing, what to not do, in order that we can say yes to what you're calling us to do. Would you help us, Father, with that? We help every individual here with that. Would you give us the grace, Lord, to recognize that, that the essence of Christ in our lives is an otherliness, a centeredness on the needs of others because of Jesus Christ and his nature upon us. And so would you help us, Lord, to live in that way? And would you pour out your blessing upon us that the love of God our Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit might be upon us now and for the rest of this week and forevermore. Amen. People of God, go in peace.